life is lonely. We are born alone and we die alone. When Descartes observed that the only thing of which he could be certain was his existence, when he declared, I am, he described the condition of conscious being for each of us. But there is a meta-togetherness that we enjoy. In some meaningful sense, we're all alone together. You and I and everyone we know, we all share being across some common dimension, time. This is our time, yours and mine. The relationships that obtain among us are perhaps not quite what they seem. I cannot really see you, the real you. I can only infer that you are there. I can only extrapolate that since I am, you must also be. I hope I'm right. The world is lonely enough with the rest of you around to make up its conscious population. In accordance with the temporally integrated causality landscape framework, I claim that all of the contents of consciousness occur within us. I mean this literally. Often writers on consciousness talk as if the body representation is projected by the brain into space. This is not quite right, although I understand what they are getting at. I suggest that sensations of the body occur within the bounds of the mind, within phenomenal space. The mind is not located in the space behind the eyes, inside of the dimensions of the cranium. Rather, the mind escapes this boundary and stretches itself to whatever is its object. This is possible because the mind does not exist in objective space. The physical substrate from which the mind is an emergent property necessarily exists in objective space. The human thalamocortex is a living substance composed of matter. It has extension in the three dimensions of objective space. The mind, however, contains an entire world of its own. Since the thalamocortical system has evolved in constant contact with the physical world, it has been tinkered into specificities which constrain the production of phenomenal space such that what I see if my brain is operating normally and what you see if your brain is operating normally has an awful lot in common. It's fascinating to consider that you and I are living in entirely separate worlds, though. I cannot see into your world, and you cannot see into mine. The objective world has created us, and we, in turn, have constructed a world in its image. If my conception of phenomenal space is right, then your body can exist inside of my world, and my body can exist inside of yours, but you and I are as separate as oil and water, and can be no closer or further apart. We are like a multiverse. The distance between one universe and another does not compute. It has no meaning since space does not occur in between them. They are infinitely far apart and infinitely close together. What a mercy that we can communicate physically and audibly across such a divide. I cannot touch you, but my hand can touch yours, out there in objectivity, and by that medium we are conveyed an event in common which touches us both, each in his own world. But when? Are we not in common time? We must share a common time, a common present, mustn't we? Your body can enter into my world only if your relation to the objective world in space and time accords with mine. Perhaps it doesn't compute to suggest that you and I exist in common space, but what about common time? General relativity suggests that space and time are dimensional in the objective universe. One affects the other. If physical or audible communication is really possible between me and you, then we must coexist along the temporal dimension. We must coexist with one another at some point in objective time. This is what we call the present moment. You and I exist together in time. In this episode, I will attempt to show how signaling in the brain uses temporal information, that is, information about time, to create space as we know it, phenomenal space. 
Obviously, the brain is a thing which exists in space with different regions connected in specific ways with one another. The cerebral cortex is laid out in six cellular layers covering the outside of the cerebral hemispheres and so on. Neuronal elements are discrete units constructed of matter and taking up space, but the relationship that obtains between them is a temporal one, not a spatial one. When a neuron in some location is stimulated at synapses on its dendrites, the determination of whether it achieves its firing threshold in response is made near its cell body. All of the incoming signal converges into one possible outgoing action potential. The neuron does not discriminate based on where those incoming signals are coming from, near or far. What then can be made of topographical maps in which neurons are arranged? Clearly such maps are spatial in nature. The neurons are laid out in the cortex in ordered sheets. Consider the network of highways connecting cities in the United States of America by way of analogy to a network of neurons in the brain. In other words, consider a real geographical map that occurs in space. Each major city is a node, an element in our network. Detroit fires an action potential targeting Chicago, and the signal gets there in about five hours by automobile. Likewise, Chicago can fire a reciprocal signal back to Detroit in five hours' time. So if Detroit signals Chicago, and Chicago promptly signals back, then Detroit gets an incoming stimulus in 10 hours. With a geographical map, the arrangement is spatial, just as it is in the cortex. But the signals which pass between one city and another are of a temporal nature. It takes time to drive from one location to the other. Keep in mind that neurons fire to all of their targets, or none of them. So let's beef up the analogy by deciding on more than one target per city. You'd think that a Detroit action potential would target nearby cities in the region. Cleveland, Chicago, and Cincinnati, for example, since that's the way a well-planned highway system would work. But not in the nervous system. This shit is going to look like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. Detroit targets Chicago, Atlanta, and Houston. Chicago targets Phoenix in New York City, and New York City targets Cleveland. So it doesn't matter that Detroit and Cleveland are nearby in space. It matters that they are far away in time. Five hours to signal Chicago, which takes 18 hours to signal New York, which takes 11 hours to signal Cleveland. If Cleveland can target Detroit, then it can do so in four hours. So given this network, it'll take no less than 5 plus 18 plus 11 plus 4 hours for a total of 38 hours. There are other circuitous routes from one city to another and back again, but the point is, the network is communicating in time, not in space. Which neurons are connected to which others, and how long it takes for one signal to reach the others, is really the important information about the network. Once all the connections are in place between one neuron and its partners, there are two critical parameters to consider. The amount of influence one neuron's firing has on another, and the amount of time it takes to effectuate that influence. The temporally integrated causality landscape attempts to describe the structure from which consciousness is emergent in terms of these two critical components, causality and time. Notice that space does not enter the picture. The brain networks are, in fact, laid out in space, but just like our Seussified map of America, the spatial layout of cities on the map gives us no useful information beyond what we would know if we just had the temporal information. Detroit to Cleveland is 38 hours. Cleveland to Detroit is only 4. Knowing the position of these cities on the geographical map only tells us that it would be impossible for a signal to get from one distant city, say Atlanta, to another, say San Francisco, in just a few hours. If there is a direct connection, it is a long one. But the information we need is all about the time and influence. The correlation between spatial adjacency and temporal adjacency is low resolution. All we need to really know about is temporal adjacency. 
If causality and time are the only components of interest in understanding the operations of an integrated system of elements, then our conscious perception of space must be constructed out of time and causality. That sounds like a radical claim, but I stand by it. Consider the retina and its correlated maps in the visual cortex. The retina is arrayed in real space in the back of the eye, responding to real photons arrayed in space. Stimuli from the retina send temporal causal signals to specific target neurons in the brain, not random ones. And we see retinotopic maps in the visual cortex, so spatial relationships are conserved between the real world, the retina, and topographical maps in the cortex. This looks on the surface to show that spatial relationships in the nervous system are critical to establishing our phenomenal space, the space we see around us in conscious representation. But this observation is kind of misleading. I think the most effective illustration of how temporal data can produce spatial content comes from the auditory system. How does the brain determine the location and space from which a sound is emitted? Clearly, we hear sounds as coming from different sources in space, but we know that the brain is producing the sounds we hear. It does so based on air pressure stimuli affecting the inner ear. The following is from a chapter on hearing in Principles of Neuroscience edited by Kandel, Schwartz, and Jessel. It says, quote, Thanks to the activity of the medial superior olive, humans can distinguish interaural delays as small as 10 microseconds and hence locate sound sources with an accuracy of a few degrees. This temporal discrimination does not depend upon a complex computation, but makes use of the delay inherent in signaling by means of action potentials. A sound arriving at one ear is transduced by hair cells, elicits firing by fibers of cranial nerve 8, and evokes spikes in the axons that project from the cochlear nuclei to the medial superior olive. The same sound initiates a similar series of events when it then reaches the opposite ear. In the medial superior olive, the axonal terminals from neurons in the contralateral, antroventral, cochlear nucleus extend across one surface of the olive. As the action potentials evoked by acoustical stimulation progress across the target nucleus, they evoke excitatory synaptic potentials in successive cells. Excitation from either ear alone is insufficient to bring a neuron in the medial superior olive to threshold. For neurons at some particular position in this nucleus, a given delay in sound stimulation of one ear is exactly counterbalanced by the delay in conduction of an action potential from the opposite side. Those cells will therefore receive simultaneous excitatory inputs from both ears and will be excited to threshold. The array of cells in the medial superior olive therefore represents a continuous gradation of interaural time differences." Unquote. So you see that temporal data can be used by a network to produce a sense of space, a recreation of real physical space. The thalamocortical system is much more complex and integrated than some subcortical structures like the olive and the cochlear nucleus. There are many topographical maps which are responsible for feature detection and associations between perceptions. Furthermore, hierarchical neural arrangements relate and integrate the regional cortical modules. All of this connectivity is immensely complex and only partially understood. Inside of all this complexity, each neuron fires action potentials, either evoked by incoming signals or produced by spontaneous intracellular processes. In the passage on hearing, we saw that there are cells which will receive simultaneous excitatory input from both ears, which then and only then will be depolarized to threshold. Temporal data are sufficient to recreate the position of a sound in space from the movement of tiny hairs inside the ear. That is incredible. 
Now imagine what the vastly more massive and complex cerebral cortex can do with all of its temporal data. I read about something called the Kappa effect in Dean Buonamano's book, Your Brain is a Time Machine. It got me thinking about how our sense of time and our sense of space are related. Buonamano writes, quote, Imagine two lights that are a few feet apart from each other. Each light is briefly flashed on and off, and the interval between the flashes is eight seconds. You are then asked to reproduce this interval by holding down a button for the estimated duration. The question is, will the distance between the two lights influence your perception of time? More specifically, your attempt to reproduce the perceived interval? One of the first studies to ask this question revealed that when the lights were 8, 16, or 32 inches apart, always flashed 8 seconds apart, the mean time estimates between the flashes was 6.5, 7.15 and 8.05 seconds, respectively. So the answer is yes, space, the distance between the lights, does influence our perception of time. This so-called kappa effect has been demonstrated many times and in many ways." Unquote. When I read this, I immediately began to wonder whether the effect is simply a psychological one, whereby we are primed by a longer distance in space to estimate a longer duration of time, or if something more mechanistic is at play. A light flashing in one position on the retina results in a signal which lands in a particular corresponding set of neurons in a topographical map. If we were to wait an interval of time and flash the same light again, the signal would land once again at that place in the topographical map. The temporal data, action potentials at those neurons, would be compared by a higher cognitive process to other temporal data from those same neurons. Our subject would then press a button for the estimated amount of time between flashes. We could do this a number of times and get a mean duration. In a second round of experiment, the light flashes and the neurons on the topographical map respond just as before, but now a light flashes from a couple of feet to the right of the first one. This signal reaches a different location on the topographical map because the stimulus landed on another location of the retina. Might it be that the higher cognitive process must now compare the time interval plus the time it takes for a signal to get from one location on the topographical map to the other? If so, then that would be expected to add a little more time to the subject's estimate. That is what was seen in the experiment Bonamano described. I'm only speculating on what it could mean, but if I am right, then it isn't the sense of the passing of time that is shifted. It is actually taking more time for the signal to travel through the network. According to my analysis, the currency of the central nervous system is causality in time. The information is captured in the temporal relationships between elements of the networks. The spatial layout of neuronal development in the cortex is evolved to facilitate a temporal arrangement. Networks along a trajectory receive signals in accordance with which lower neurons were stimulated first or last or at the same time. Higher up the cortical hierarchy, the temporal code composes phenomenal space, time space, if you like. Within that time space, objects are bound together by synchrony against a background of asynchrony. Let's return to the geographical map of the United States. We have already established that the highways leading into and out of a given city need not be designed for efficient travel. They can be given the Dr. Seuss treatment, which is how we saw that a signal from Detroit to Cleveland would take 38 hours, but the reverse trip from Cleveland to Detroit is done in four hours. Imagine that all of the major cities in the country have a number of incoming signals from other locations and branching signals going outward to other places. A given city, say Chicago, either reaches threshold or does not. How might we improve Chicago by adding a more sophisticated network? If we had an array of elements across Chicago instead of just one, 
and incoming highways split as they arrive to signal more than one of these elements, the network could determine which direction the signal is coming from. If there is a 4x4 array of 16 total elements at each major city, and the highway splits to make contact with several of them, the order in which they receive that stimulus will enable differential processing based on where it is coming from. This, I suggest, is how complex neuronal networks can create time space. Individual neurons have branching axons of various lengths and terminate on various specific targets. So their action potentials and subsequent synaptic activities will exhibit causal power on other neurons in a temporally informative manner. Our thinking cannot be restricted to where something is happening in the brain, but rather we must ask how much and when. The suggestion I am making is reminiscent of the DNA double helix. The two strands are complementary, so that either strand of the double helix could be used to recreate the other. This is how we can replicate DNA and make additional cells, including gametes. By analogy, the physical world is laid out in space, but the data occurring in the brain are all composed of causality and time. Real events in the physical world serve as a template from which temporal data are extracted to recreate an internal model of space. In order to take action in the physical world and not just in the internal model, temporal data must serve as output to effector muscles in the limbs or the face, or the tongue, or wherever, which make their impact in the physical world. Time is the medium through which the physical world and the phenomenal world interact. The physical world is space-time. The phenomenal world is time-space.